Well, tonight we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 4 and going through verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. As I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking it's kind of wild to consider that we're eight sermons into this series on First and Second Peter, and yet we're just getting to the end of the introduction of Peter's first letter. And yet here we are. Because there's simply so much that Peter has to say in this introduction about who we are in Christ. And it absolutely bears taking apart and understanding in detail. Now, Peter will soon turn from this introduction, this explanation of who we are in Christ, to explaining how his audience can live to honor God in a world that has turned hostile to him. For despite all that they are going through, Peter leads us in tonight's passage to an optimistic climax, showing who we are in Christ before he explains how we ought to live in a difficult age. And so what exactly is it that can give us this optimism in hard times? Well, it all depends on coming to Christ in faith. Back in verse 3, Peter calls on us all to consider whether we have tasted that Christ the Lord is good. For we all ought to be able to ask this question, have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And to examine ourselves and to be able to answer affirmatively. For indeed, Christ is good. And if you taste him in his word, you will find that he is indeed good. And yet without that confidence that he is good, without having that taste of him, we can never approach him faithfully. And so as Peter issues this call to come to him. We have to consider what God is going to do, what he is, in Peter's uh, analogy, what God is building in Christ. And so first, we'll look in verses 4 through 7a about the spiritual house God is building on Christ as the cornerstone. 
Second, we'll look at verses 7b and 8 at the fate of those who reject Christ as that foundation stone. And third, in verses 9 through 10, at the honor of those who do embrace Christ as the cornerstone. So first, in verses 4 through 7, at the spiritual house built on Christ. We'll look at this description of the spiritual house in two parts. First, at Christ, the living stone. And then second, at believers like you and me, as living stones built into the spiritual house on Christ, the living stone. And so first, Christ is the living stone that God has laid to build his spiritual house. It says right here in verse 4 that he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We're going to put off for just a second that rejection by men, but focus now on God's purpose for Christ as this living stone. Now, it's important that Christ is referred to as a living stone, for we're not meant to think of him as an inanimate hunk of marble. Now, the unbelievers of Christ's day considered him to be dead. They saw him die on the cross. When Christ, in fact, rose from the dead, we read uh, that they circulated a story about how his disciples had stolen his body and carried it off somewhere. But those who believe in him know that he is, in fact, alive. They know, we know that he ate fish with his disciples, that he walked and talked with them, that he taught them what was going to happen after his ascension, what would happen when the Holy Spirit came and gave them power to proclaim the good news. Jesus walked with his disciples in his body, but not just any body, in a body that was fit for glory, a body that belongs in heaven, where he ascended and now is seated at on his throne in the heavenly throne room of the Father. For we also read in verse 4 that this Christ is chosen and precious in the sight of his Father. Now we read in John 17 that the Father and Son have shared perfect love and glory with one another from all eternity. When Christ came to earth, he came as God's beloved Son. And this mutual love is evident in the warmth and familiarity of Jesus' prayers to the Father. Even the way that he could sincerely ask the Father to let the cup of wrath pass from him and yet still commit himself to God's will. It's evident in the way Father honored Jesus by proclaiming him to be his son publicly at his baptism and at the transfiguration. This love is evident in Christ's obedience that led him to die on the cross and in the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead and exalting him to sit down in heaven. Now in verse 6, we read that Christ is not only a living stone, not just any stone, but the cornerstone of the house, the spiritual house that God is building. Now these days, what you could look at at a a stone building and, and see as the cornerstone, it's often actually just ceremonial in its purpose. You see the cornerstone on a building, it has the date engraved 
from, from the date that it was laid, perhaps uh, an architect's name or some other important person to the building project, maybe a motto or a logo of some kind. But this is just symbolic for the true cornerstone of any building built like this is the first stone that is laid. And this stone is the first stone where every other stone is built on top of it and in alignment with it. And so that first stone, it determines the orientation and the position of the entire structure. For every other brick will be laid in alignment with it. And so if the cornerstone is off in any way, the entire structure will also be off. And yet Christ, the cornerstone, is perfect. Now it's important to understand the scripture that Peter is citing here, for he's citing Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And in fact, in these few verses, Peter cites uh, every, uh, every stone passage, in, or not every stone passage, every passage relating, uh, describing the Messiah as a stone that we see in the Old Testament. And here he's citing Isaiah 28, 16. Now in this passage, in the context of Isaiah 28, the rulers of Jerusalem have made a covenant, they say, with death and Sheol. They've made a covenant with death and Sheol so that they will be protected from calamity, as though trying to appease death is going to somehow save them from the death that is approaching them. But God responds by saying that he is the one who has laid the foundation of Zion and that he judges according to his perfect cornerstone. Justice is his line and righteousness is his plumb. So the entire city that God is building will reflect the perfection of the cornerstone that he has laid. And so those who believe in God, those who trust in God and align with this cornerstone will be honored but those who reject God will be beaten down. For faith in Christ as God's cornerstone is the only way that one can be saved. And so we come in these few verses in Peter now to what these same verses say about those who put their trust in Christ as the cornerstone. For Peter speaks of Christ as the living stone, and then in verse 5, he speaks of believers as other living stones. Now in Christ, God is building up every believer together, lining us up with Christ and constructing out of us a house. God is conforming you as his faithful children, his living stones. He is conforming you to Christ. And so as Christ was rejected by men, so his children are rejected by men. And Peter's audience knew it all too well, for they faced persecution, and they gave up honor in the eyes of their society for their faith in Christ. But just as God conforms us to Christ in his rejection by men, God also conforms us to Christ in making us chosen and precious to him. And so by faith in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, God sees us as clothed with Christ's righteousness rather than the filthy rags of our sin. We are precious to him just as Jesus is precious to him. 
And so out of us, God is building a house. But not just any house. It's a spiritual house. God is building out of his people a temple. A place for God to dwell. A place for God to be served and honored and worshipped. And here's the thing. It's a beautiful thing to be built up into a temple. Now, you don't need to t- me to tell you about the physical beauty of temples. And Peter didn't need to remind his audience either. Because they would encounter temples to the various false gods every day. And even a temple to a false god can have that outward appearance of beauty. So you can picture temples such as the Parthenon of Athens or the Temple of Artemis to say nothing of the glory of Solomon's temple or Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The temples that were built to worship the true God. Buildings that had not only physical beauty, but spiritual beauty as well. Laid in enormous costly stones, paneled with cedar, its furniture overlaid with all sorts of gold and bronze. Places where God's people gathered to sing praises to him, to offer sacrifice to him, and to meet with their God. It would have been a feast for the eyes as well as for the spiritual heart. But this is nothing to the beauty and holiness and glory of the temple that God is building out of you, his children. I love it, what it says in the Confession of Faith, that in the Old Covenant, the truths of the Gospel, and I'm paraphrasing here, the truths of the Gospel uh, are held with less outward glory in the New Covenant, and yet greater spiritual efficacy. And isn't the true beauty that spiritual efficacy God revealing himself to us fully in the person of Christ and putting his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we may have love for him and his love from him as well in our hearts so that we may be a temple bringing his presence wherever we go as individuals and especially collectively as the body of Christ, as his church. And so by faith in Christ, every one of you, a living stone, has an honored place in this structure that God is building to his glory. If you've ever seen, I think you usually would see this in a, a square that's laid in brickwork, but sometimes you see a building built with uh, the names of people who have made donations, contributions uh, to that edifice. And It's a beautiful thing to see people team together like that, but what a beautiful thing to think of God signing his name on each one of us as he puts each of us into a perfect place in conformity and alignment to Christ, our cornerstone, as he builds this church. Now here, Peter mixes metaphors a little bit because the Greek word that we translate into house can have a double meaning because it can also mean a household. And Peter plays into this double meaning by teaching that faith in Christ also makes us a priestly family, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. And what is it to offer these spiritual sacrifices? Well, in the previous verses, we find that Peter commends everything as the spiritual milk to which we long. 
everything that is fitting for the person who has faith in Christ. His word, faithfulness to him, fellowship with fellow believers, the correction that we get from one another. Anything that feeds our faith is fitting for the person who has faith in Christ. And these things are our spiritual sacrifices. So Peter has in view here not only faith itself, but also the faithfulness in which we walk. Earnest love for one another and overall being holy as God is holy. This overall life of commitment to God is the spiritual sacrifice. And yet we praise God that these spiritual sacrifices are not acceptable to God because they're good in themselves, because they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Perfection is our aim, but we all know that we fall short. I could give you a long list of the ways that I've fallen short this week. We don't need to do that, but we all could do the same thing, couldn't we? But even your weak frail efforts at faithfulness, even mixed with sin though they are, they are acceptable to God because of Christ's perfect obedience. Because of Christ's perfect faithfulness to God, God requires of you only sincere effort. He doesn't demand perfection of us as as a, a hard taskmaster, but he demands sincerity. And he will grow us in sincerity. He will grow us toward perfection. And one day, he will indeed make us perfect. And so we see how God has laid in Christ a cornerstone on which he is building up his church as a temple to offer sincere faithfulness to him. And it is to the question of sincerity and faith that we'll turn next. For in verses 7 through 10, Peter shows the opposite fates of those who reject Christ and those who embrace him in faith. So first in verses, the second half of verse 7 and all of 8, we'll look at how God brings down those who do not have faith. We'll see how he frustrates their purposes. And we see this in a couple of, of three ways. First, that they cannot keep Christ down. Second, that they are, themselves are brought down in their purposes. And third, that they are destined to lack faith. Now first, those who rejected Christ find that he is magnified over them all the same. For it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders thought that they were doing away with Christ. And God elevates and magnifies him anyway. Now here, Peter is citing Psalm 118, verse 22. And in this psalm, God's people praise him because he saves those who call on him, but he cuts off those who do not. The builders rejected Jesus, but he made him the cornerstone anyway. And Peter cited this exact same text in Acts 4. In that chapter, he is telling the religious leaders of his day that they are the builders who rejected Christ, the cornerstone. They were trying to stop the gospel message. They had crucified Jesus, and now they hauled the apostles before a tribunal because of the crime of healing a man born unable to walk in Jesus' name. These men were so obsessed with building their own religious project and their own religious lives, so concerned for their own position in society that they could not see Christ for who he was as the promised cornerstone 
And though they commanded the apostles not to speak in Jesus' name, the results speak for themselves, don't they? For that religious establishment from Acts no longer exists. But Jesus' name continues to be proclaimed. And his word continues to heal those who are spiritually dead in their sins. And in this story, we also see Peter's second point, don't we? That those who try to bring Christ down are themselves brought down. For Peter's third text here cites Isaiah 8.14, that this stone will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now this curious phrase is meant to evoke that everybody will encounter Christ one way or another, and you will either believe and be built on him to honor, or in your unbelief you will trip over him. God will leave you with your offenses unforgiven. You will stumble over the very one who came to offer forgiveness to sinners and die in your sins. Thrown into the lake of fire that we read about in Revelation 20. For when you come to encounter Christ, you will find that there is no hope available to you if you reject him. Which brings us to the third point, that those people who reject him are destined by God to perish in their sins. There is no other option if you want to escape this terrible fate. Faith in Christ is your only option. But if you do have faith in Christ, if you do trust in him and have as evidence your sincere spiritual offerings, you can trust that you are not in that category of people. You are not one of those who stumble and fall over Christ. But God will certainly bring down those who remain in their unbelief and wickedness. You can be sure of that. And so we have seen that God is building his people into a spiritual house on Christ the cornerstone. And that those who do not embrace Christ by faith will trip and fall over this cornerstone instead. But finally we come in verses 9-10. through 10 to those who embrace Christ by faith. Here, Christ is explaining the honor that he references back in verse 7. Now, I think it's worth taking a moment to reflect on something interesting about this text. For certainly, it is to the praise of God's glorious justice that the wicked die in their sins. But do you note that Peter is very matter-of-fact about it? He states it and moves on. Yet look at how much more attention and praise Peter lavishes on the glory of God's grace to sinners who believe. Now we should praise God for all of his works. For we should praise him for his justice and his judgment. But it's important to recognize that the Bible gives more, uh, that gives, gives more words, places a greater emphasis on the praise of his mercy. And so we should hope that we emphasize the things that Scripture emphasizes. But with that said, let's look at these two verses. These are the capstone of Peter's introduction to his letter. God has worked a transformation in you who embrace Christ by faith. And so we see here in verse 9 four, four identity markers. First, that you are a chosen race. God has chosen you to be His in Christ. He has adopted you into His family and He has made a new society out of this family. 
Every people group has its customs, its values, its mores. So it is in Christ. God has called people out of every nation, out of every tribe, out of every language. And he has made for himself a new people to be distinct from all the other peoples of the earth, to reject the things that the world loves and to embrace the things that God loves. It's no wonder that Peter's audience were rejected by the world around us, around them. Uh, people in the trade guilds who wouldn't offer sacrifice to the God of their trade. Uh, people who would not uh, bow to the emperor as supreme, but honor him only as, uh, as one whose authority comes from the Most High God, and so on. You can see how when God creates a new society, it brings friction with the world, and yet we are chosen. We are rejected by men, but chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. God called the people of Israel a kingdom of priests, just as the Levitical priests served as mediators between God and the people of Israel, God also called the whole nation of Israel to serve as mediators between God and the rest of the world. And this is true of his people in Christ as well. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians of his people as being ambassadors. And we in the church bring the message of the gospel to the world around us. You are a holy nation, set apart by God for his righteous and just purposes. In the church, we reflect God's character of holiness. We encourage one another to do good. We encourage one another to be holy as God is holy. When necessary, we discipline those who fall, but we are quick to receive their repentance, just as God does not clear the guilty, but does forgive iniquity and transition and transgression and sin. We are a nation, a holy nation. We are set apart by God as his citizens, as people who have rights in his kingdom, rights to his defending us, rights ultimately to inherit as his children, rights to receive his kingdom. You are God's treasured possession. He delights in you. Now, hopefully none of you are too motivated by material things, but I'm sure you all know what it's like to have something nice, something you take special care of more than your other belongings. I'm that way about my houseplants. I love to see them grow and thrive. But let's leave behind, aside possessions as precious. What about those of you who are parents, your children? I'm sure that, although of course we love cute babies and young people, but I'm sure that you parents love watching your children grow up, master new skills, learn to live faithfully to God in this world. We all, by the way, should find one another precious and cheer one another on and delight to see one another grow in faithfulness to God in this world. Every time you feel that way, you have a small taste of how God himself watches over you and looks at you as his treasured possession. So we have these identity markers, but we also see in these couple of verses some changes of status with respect to God. First, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
outside of Christ, we were in darkness. We were blind in our sins, unable to live rightly, unable to find the path to God, let alone to walk in it if we did find it. But by calling you to Christ, he has changed everything. Though we see through a mirror dimly, we do see. And one day, we will see God face to face. Next, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were once on your own in this world, spiritual orphans, people without a nation. But now, you are a part of God's people. You have a community. You have a family of faith. You belong in God's family as his child and as a citizen of his kingdom. And you always will. And most crucially, you once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were once lost in your sins and destined for death, but now in the death of Christ on the cross, his blood shed for you. God pours out his mercy on you. One day, being made fit for heaven this way, you will one day live with him in eternity. And so God has changed your identity and worked a transformation in your lives through this work of building you up as a temple on Christ as the cornerstone. And all of this brings us to our new purpose in life as we see in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has done this work in you through Christ. Now, Peter is about to mark a transition in this letter, for up to this point, he has been telling us who we are as believers in Christ. He's emphasized themes like our future inheritance of God's kingdom, holy conduct in our life, a purified soul, love for our brothers and sisters, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But starting in verse 11, he will begin to unpack how we ought to live in this world. And in every way, he calls us to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. The one who has done everything for us. The one who has given us life. But we do it in a world that doesn't want to hear this message. It wants to pursue what it thinks is life in its own way. And so we have to proclaim God's excellencies in a world that will challenge us, fight the gospel tooth and nail, and generally try to bring us down. So Peter is going to teach us what it looks like to proclaim God's excellencies. But it starts with knowing who you are in Christ. For you can encounter Christ and stumble over him if you like, but you can't keep him down. But instead, if you come to him, If you embrace him, he will make you a part of his glorious temple. He lays you on a sure foundation to walk through this life as challenging as it may be. He will make you like Christ. And in doing so, he will enable you by his strength to faithfully proclaim his excellencies in a world that rejects him. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for who you are making us to be in Christ. Father, we pray that you would cause us to reflect deeply on 
what it means for each of us to offer spiritual sacrifices as living stones in this spiritual house that you are building us. We pray that we would look to Christ, that we would meditate on him as he is revealed in your word. We pray that you would make us more and more like him so that both by word and by deed, we would indeed live to the praise of your excellencies and that the whole world would see it. In Christ's name we pray.